You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is from Romans 11, beginning in verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fall, their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am my, an, an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, ordinary, <coughs> contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these the natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree. Remember that this is the word of the Lord. Back in March of 2019, uh, major social media platforms such as Facebook, Instagram, other platforms like that shut down for the large part of an entire day because of some technical issues. And as millions of users couldn't access their platforms, people began to experience serious anxiety, serious shock, that feeling of being disconnected, not knowing what's going on, plagued by the thought, there's something happening out there in the world that I'm not in the know on and I'm not participating on, uh, participating in. I remember seeing a, me a meme with a guy on the phone saying, Instagram is down, just describe your lunch to me. <laughs> As a result, researchers began to study anxiety associated with staying digitally connected. 
One study found that 20% of social media users are incapable of going more than a few hours without checking their feed. So if the stats apply here, one-fifth of you will not be able to resist the temptation to disconnect from what is embodied and right before you to plug in and see what's happening in the digital world, whether it's a sports team and the score or what's going on in your social media feed or fill in the blank. And the reason people find it difficult is that they begin to experience significant anxiety about missing out on something, that there is this this idea that there is a lot going on out there and I am being left behind. I am being excluded. I'm sure, I'm positive you've heard the term FOMO. And it's a more recent term, but it's an experience that is as old as humanity. It's that anxiety that's evoked by the appearance that there are people out there that are flourishing and thriving and here I am and I miss the boat. Fear of missing out could actually probably be called or described as the fear of being excluded. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, I have been left out. And while it can be a very negative experience leading to, as I mentioned, anxiety and discontentment and even a sense of isolation and aloneness, it actually can be a very positive force. There is good and healthy FOMO that motivates people to experience something better in their lives, to see other people flourishing and then move towards that to be included. That's why many of us actually explored the Christian faith in the first place. You saw God at work in people's lives and you said, I want to experience that as well. This is what I believe Paul is describing here in this sort of complicated passage in Romans chapter 11. As many of the people of Israel had rejected the gospel at this time, Paul then intentionally turned to the Gentiles, those who were the religious outsiders. And what he found among this people group is that they were far more open to receiving the good news of Jesus Christ. They were far more open to the gospel. And as Eugene Peterson describes this passage, ironically, when Israel walked out, they left the door open and the outsiders walked in. But the next thing you know, the Jews were standing, I'm sorry, starting to wonder if perhaps they had walked out on a good thing. Maybe I've left a good thing here. And Paul explains this does not mean, hear me, this does not mean that Jews are now out of the picture for good. No, he sees this present moment as a distinct opportunity, one, to invite the nations to belong, to invite the world to come and to be a part of this because there has been room that has been made. But also, by doing so, he hopes that the Jewish people will realize what they're missing out on and want to get in on it through trust in Jesus Christ. That's kind of the big idea. We're going to look at this passage under three headings if you're taking notes. We're going to look at provoking, participating, and persevering. Let's look first at provoking. Now, it may seem strange, and I, I believe it is a strange way to describe it, but Paul saw his personal ministry as necessarily provocative. And I don't mean in like a scantily clad, uh, sort of suggestive, indecent sort of way. 
but provocative in the stimulating way, thought-provoking way, even agitating sort of way. Look with me again in verses 11 and 13 and 14. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they, may, they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel what? Jealous. That's interesting. Look at me in verses 13 and 14. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Who's he speaking to? The Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews what? Jealous and thus save some of them. So Paul's saying, what I'm doing is I'm making a big deal about what God is doing among you. Why? Not to rub it in, not to guilt or shame my fellow people, not to exclude them, but to show them, to visibly show them what they could be experiencing for themselves through trusting in Jesus. He's saying, I want to highlight what you have received so that those outside looking in can come in and experience it as well. And so his hope and his prayer is that when the Jewish people begin to see those blessings of salvation being enjoyed among the religious outsiders, as, he, as, the, as the, the religious community begins to see the love and the joy and the reconciliation and the love for God and love for others and this sense of purpose among the Gentiles who've received the gospel, so then they will desire it for themselves. So then they, the prayer is, will repent of their sins and to turn to Jesus as well. Now, as much as that describes Paul's personal ministry in the first century, and it was a very unique ministry with very unique people groups, I actually believe that this applies to us today in the 21st century. I believe that this applies to us reality, that the work of God among his people should be provocative. The work of God among us should be eye-turning. It, it ought to be getting the attention of the world around us in a very provoking way. Now, let me illustrate this from history. Uh, in the fourth century, there was an emperor in Rome named Julian. This was right after Constantine had made Christianity the sort of state religion of Rome, but in within like a generation or two, this emperor named Julian had turned away from Christianity and was trying to revive its pagan roots in Rome. And while he had personally denied the Christian faith, what he could not deny was the power being displayed among Christians and specifically in their relationships. And so what he does is phenomenal. What he does is he writes a letter to the pagan priests. He's doing a little leadership training among the pagan priests. And what he says is you need to pay attention to these Christians and you need to begin to mimic their lives in order to turn Rome away from Christianity back to its pagan roots. And we actually have a letter that he wrote, and it says this. Why are we not observing how the kindness of Christians to strangers, their care for the burial of their dead, and the sobriety of their lifestyle has done the most to advance their cause? How have we not been paying attention how effective these people are? How are we not noticing how different this Christian church is and how effective it is in their cause here in Rome? We know 
that we are living a provocative faith when people begin to question our lives. Do not freak out when people begin to question your life. Be encouraged. It's stirring questions. Leslie Newbegin once said that we must live in the kingdom of God in a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. So let's take, for instance, some examples. Someone couldn't stay away from social media, apparently. <laughs> let's take, for instance, some examples. How is that that you love one another despite all of your differences? How is it that you love each other even though you guys are all so different? Well, the answer is Jesus in, in the way that he has loved me and the way he's loved us. Or how about this? Why is it that you continue to dedicate so much time and so much energy and so much money to this whole church community thing? You could be doing so much more with that 10%. You could be doing so much more with those Sundays. The answer is Jesus and all that he's given to me and all that he's committed for me. Or why do you care about those other people in the office like you do? And why do you care about all those people in the classroom like you do? It seems like you're putting their needs above your own needs. Why would you do that? And why do you do all these things for the community knowing that you're not going to get anything in return? And how is it that you stay calm when it seems like the world is falling apart? And why do, why do you not move in with your boyfriend and girlfriend? It, it would save you money. It makes economical sense not to. Why would you do this? Why would you do that? Why would you not do this? And the answer over and over and over again is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, no, yeah, Jesus. As a result of what the Spirit of God is doing in and through us, people are going to begin to take note. And what's going to happen is they're going to begin to consider their own lives. That's, what, that's what's behind the question. Why are you doing that? They're not just questioning you. They're questioning themselves. They're beginning to consider their own lives. They're beginning to consider their own motivations, their own responses, the quality of their relationships, the stability of their emotions, whether or not they have joy and purpose and meaning in their own life. And by God's grace, our transformed lives will be used by God to begin to draw people in to experience the richness of life in Jesus and all of his blessings. God in his grace will use our lives to connect other people to the life of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's look secondly at participating. Participating. Now, over the years, Michelle and I have planted quite a few plants. We've lived in, over the last 17 years, we've lived in a lot of places and planted a lot of plants. And I think we determined pretty early on, we do not have green thumbs. We, we, we killed more plants than we allowed to thrive. But if I may say so myself, <laughs> we've had some mild success just recently. You know, we've got these climbing roses that have taken off, a fiddle fig that like outgrew my house. We've got some jasmine that's really go going and growing. And what I realized is that the key to really that success is pruning. It's just the careful, thoughtful removal of portions uh, you know, in order to promote life, in order to promote flourishing. But as much as I've had some mild, and I emphasize that word mild success in keeping plants alive and growing, there's an entire area of horticulture 
that like far exceeds my ability to trim branches here and there. It's what we're, it's what we're, what's revealed in this passage, and it's grafting in new life. It's this phenomenal process that trips out my mind just thinking about it, of taking branches from another plant and then incorporating it into the life of another. And this is what's being illustrated here in Romans chapter 11. This is what we see both pruning and grafting of the olive tree. Now, there's pruning, and the pruning is the removal of branches that have hardened, the branches that have closed themselves off to the nourishment and the sap and the life and salvation of Jesus Christ, those being cut off and thereby creating space for other people who will receive that life in Jesus Christ. We see pruning, but we also see grafting in. The grafting in of these foreign branches into the tree which represents God's people so that what originally did not belong now belongs. What originally was not tapped into that life is now tapped into the life source of the tree, which is Jesus Christ, which, as I was made aware of this last week, is actually a mutually beneficial experience. It benefits both parties because the cultivated tree is reinvigorated by these wild olive shoots being brought in, and then the wild olive shoots are made to flourish because they're incorporated into the mature tree. It's a mutually beneficial process. And so Paul is talking about here the wisdom and skill and God of God to prune. We, we, we see that God is described as the vine dresser in John chapter 15. God prunes the vine. He prunes the branches. But listen. Grafting. Grafting is where we see the beauty and the wisdom and the creativity of God highlighted most. Pruning is necessary. Pruning is important. But pruning is not the final goal. The goal is reconciliation. The goal is being brought in. And this is what we as God's people ought to be most passionate about. Paul's hope and prayer is that those who have been cut off will be grafted back in. And he says in verse 23 that God has the power to do that. That which has been cut off can be brought in. It is not irreversible. There is a snip, snap, snip, snap that can happen. It can be brought back into the life and the vibrancy. I knew I shouldn't have said that. Back into the vibrancy of the olive tree. And he says to the Gentiles, remember, he's speaking to the Gentiles. Yes, you have benefited by their temporary exclusion. You are here because they were cut off. But can you imagine the blessings that would come through their inclusion? Could you imagine the storehouses of heaven being opened up by them being brought back in? Christianity has been very bold and very confident in its determining of who is in and who is out. Over the last 2,000 years, since the birth of Christianity, Christians have crafted these long, lengthy, complex lists of people who cannot belong. Sadly, based on race, or social status, or gender, or sexuality, or politics, or fill in the blank. 
But listen to how Paul describes things here in verse 15, and I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. He says, For since the rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, their acceptance will be even more wonderful. It will be life for those who were dead. I want to make this absolutely clear. The result of inclusion far exceeds the result of exclusion. And what is accomplished through including is far more wonderful than what is accomplished through excluding. Now, don't get me wrong. This does not mean that we compromise the gospel. This does not mean that we diminish the call to radical devotion to Jesus Christ. This does not mean that we diminish the call to radical obedience to the clear teachings of Scripture. This does not mean that we reduce God down to the lowest common denominator to make it easy for everyone to believe. It simply means that anyone can participate, that anyone can get in on this, that anyone who will repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ can belong no matter what. And so it is exclusive. This is exclusive. Paul is not talking about multiple trees. Paul is talking about one olive tree. There's one source of life. He would describe it like this in Ephesians chapter 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. This is not all roads lead to heaven. This is not, there are multiple sources of life. There is one. And yet, this is wildly inclusive. It's wildly inclusive because the wild olive shoots can belong. Those who were not a part can be a part. Tim Keller would put it this way, the gospel is an exclusive truth but it's the most inclusive, exclusive truth in the world. What truth claim can you find out there that is both this exclusive and yet this welcoming? Now here in Rome, remember the context is first century Rome that Paul is writing to. In the first century in Rome, in the church, Gentiles had become the majority in the church. We've talked about this. There was this edict that kicked all Jewish people out of Rome for like five years. And when they ended up coming back into Rome, what they found was that the church had become predominantly Gentile, predominantly non-Jewish. And these Gentiles were becoming arrogant towards others and becoming arrogant because of their majority position in the church. They began to look down on the Jews. And even in some cases, sadly, they began to believe that they had replaced the Jews in God's plans. We're in, you're out. We belong, and you're out of here. And so Paul reminds the non-Jewish believers, which, by the way, is like almost all of us, if not all of us here today, that not only is this thing, like, not yours to control— and it's not your thing to claim as your own. He says, don't forget it's not you who supports the root. It's the root that supports you. But also the fact that you are participants here is sheer grace in the first place. Because you were the olive shoots. 
You were the ones that didn't belong and now have been grafted in contrary to nature. If there's anything strange in the church, it's the fact that we are here. And because of that, he says, you have absolutely no reason to be exclusive. You have absolutely no reason to be, as a church, clicky. And you have zero authority, zero authority to determine who deserves to be here and who deserves to not be here. This makes me think about the ways that we today, reality, and the church in the West try to determine who deserves to be here. Now, we can do this more overtly, and we see examples of this where people intentionally exclude people and people groups. You do not belong here. You cannot be a part of this. Stay out. But also, we can do this less intentionally and in a more passive way. And the way that we can do this is by simply deciding for someone before welcoming them. They wouldn't be interested in this. Nah, if I know this person, they, they wouldn't believe. They wouldn't be able to stomach all this Christian stuff. They, they're too much of, you know, like thinkers and they're educated. And I, I, I just don't think that they would really gel with this thing. We determine for them before we've ever even given them the option to respond. And inadvertently, we have become exclusive people, excluding people. Look at me in verse 17. Although a wild olive shoot, you were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. This is not ours to protect. This is not ours to hoard. This is not ours to keep. Paul makes it clear. This is ours to share so that others can come in and participate in the life of Jesus in the church. Friend, hear me. The greatest enjoyment of your faith is going to be found in the sharing of your faith. Do you feel that your faith is stale? You feel that your faith is stagnant? You feel that you're stuck in your faith? It's probably because you're hoarding it and you're keeping it to yourself. And you're, whether you know it or not, leaning into this exclusivism that Paul is directly warning them about. We need to make it really clear. Here in reality, in this tree, in the tree of Jesus Christ that we are a part of, there's a place for anyone and everyone who would come by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? You guys still with me? Okay. We're looking finally at persevering. Persevering. Perseverance of the saints is a really rich, important doctrine that teaches us that those whom God has accepted through Jesus Christ, those who are legitimately saved and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that they can neither totally nor finally fall away from grace. That God's people will persevere to the end. And that our perseverance does not depend on our ability to hold on to God. Our perseverance depends on God's ability to hold on to us. And it's the intercession of Jesus Christ and the ongoing indwelling of the Holy Spirit at work within us that keeps us in God's grace, that keeps us connected to the tree, so to speak. But the doctrine also teaches us that through temptation, through willful disobedience, through neglecting spiritual disciplines, we can actually displease God. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. 
We can experience hardened hearts and wounded consciences in a way that's actually detrimental to our relationship with God and others. And the point that Paul seems to be making is that while the gospel gives us a profound confidence, I mean, that was like what Romans 8 was all about. We are sure of this. We have confidence that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And it does give us confidence. But this confidence does not, and it should never lead us to arrogance nor negligence. It's a confidence that ought to lead us toward holy fear and faithfulness. Look at me again in verses 19 through 22. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity. Isn't that a strange combination? The kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who've fallen, but God's kindness to you. Provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. That's a lot to take in. Throughout Romans, Paul has been showing that the nation of Israel had assumed that because they were Abraham's children, that they were forever in. It doesn't really matter how I live. I'm Abraham's child. I'm in and I'm always in, no matter what happened. Sort of like many today who say, you know, I prayed the prayer when I was like eight years old at some summer camp. I'm in. It doesn't really matter what I do now. It doesn't matter how I live. I prayed the prayer. I'm in. But he's been showing that instead, it's those who believe in Christ and continue in Christ that are in. But now, he turns the attention to the Gentiles. Remember, he's speaking specifically to the Gentiles. And he directs the same warning towards them. And he's saying it in no uncertain terms. You have become arrogant. You have become arrogant, and you simply think that you are in. And that once you're in, you're always in. And what he's saying is this sort of once saved, always saved, smug attitude is actually going to it's going to come back and bite you. It's going to give you a false sense of security. Because the true test of whether or not someone is in is not a prayer. The true test of whether or not someone is in is perseverance. It's persevering to the end. It's similar to Jesus' instructions that we find in John chapter 15 where he tells the disciples, abide in me, or the word simply means remain. John 15, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. If anyone does not abide or remain in me, he's thrown away like the branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Now, building on what we've already seen in the book of Romans, we step back, and in this passage, which kind of seems, well, to use Paul's term, severe, we actually begin to see a beautiful picture of the gospel being unfolded before us. Because ultimately, it was Jesus that was the branch that was cut off 
so that you and I could be grafted in. And it wasn't based on our worthiness. It wasn't based on our faithfulness. It wasn't based on anything in and of us, but on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And through trusting in who he is and what he has done for us. At the cross, Jesus suffered the severity of God so that we could forever experience the kindness of God. And the point that I want us to see here is that Jesus remained. Remember the temptation that Jesus faced when he was on the cross? The temptation was to come down. The centurion said, if you truly the son of God, if you truly who you say you are, come down off the cross, make it easy. And yet he remained. He remained in the harshness until it was finished so that you and I could remain in God's kindness all the way through the finish line. Jesus continued so that you and I could continue. Perseverance, it's a strange, big concept, but it is simply this. Perseverance is both good news, it's also an important instruction. It's good news because it tells us that God supplies the grace and strength and faith to stay the course. But it's also an instruction. You must hold fast. Friend, you must continue in the kindness of God. I found myself ending a lot of conversations with individuals in the church the same way. Keep pressing on. It's not a complex statement, but I think it's probably one of the most timely things that we can hear as God's people. Keep pressing on. Keep persevering. Keep going. And I've come to believe that the key to success in the Christian life, how we win in the Christian life is very simple. We press on. We persevere. And this is based on the promise that Jesus gives to the churches in the book of Revelation that there's a crown of victory awaiting every single believer that crosses the finish line. It's not reserved for those who cross first. It's not reserved for those who cross fastest. Whether you sprint or you run or you walk or you crawl, whether it's a vibrant, lively crossing of the finish line or it's an ugly crawl across the finish line, what matters most is that you persevere, is that you persevere to the end. I want to conclude with a story and I'm done. In C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Don Treader, there's the ship called the Don Treader, and it sets out east in search of lost people and new adventures. And there's this strange character on board named Marie Pachit, who's a small, rambunctious, tiny little mouse who is motivated by this deep longing. He describes it as a longing for Aslan's country. And from his earliest years, he can remember he was told of this place where sky and water meet, where the, the waves grow sweet, where he finally discovers everything he's always been searching for. And he describes this spell. He describes it as a spell that's on his life. He can't shake it. He can't get rid of it. It's what drives him. It's what motivates everything he does in life. And he goes on to say this, while I can, I set sail east in the dawn treader. And when she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle. And when she sinks, I shall swim east with my forepaws. 
and when I can swim no longer, and I've not reached Aslan's country, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. Sailing, paddling, swimming, or sinking. Set your face toward the horizon of eternity. And friend, for Christ's sake, keep on going. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.